So Luke chapter 4. You made it through the genealogies last week. Congratulations. I conveniently uh, was on vacation last week, so Seth had to preach the genealogies. So just one of those funny things. Um, uh, Luke chapter 4. And greetings to the people down in the overflow room. As you know, there's an overflow worship room down there. And I, I'm told I actually look thinner on the screen down there. So. so I'm a big fan of the overflow room. I think it's a good thing. Uh, Luke chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 1 to 13. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So, if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, when you read that story, uh, does it sound like any other Bible stories you've heard? When you read or hear me read that text, does it seem like it echoes other stories of testing or temptation from the Old Testament? Because I think it does. I mean, do you kind of hear echoes of other Old Testament stories as you think of the details of Jesus' life? Because I think that what's taking place in this temptation story is not merely the temptation of Jesus, but in a sense it's the, the replaying or the recapitulating of other temptation stories. But where others have failed, Christ will succeed. Can you think of any? I think there's at least two specific Old Testament echoes that are taking place in this text. Uh, One of them you might have guessed is uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden being tempted by the devil. I I think this is kind of a a replay, a reverberation of Adam. In fact, uh, check this out. Uh, Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, all right. Uh, Go to verse 22. You studied this last week. Baptism of Jesus. He's baptized, verse 22. The Holy Spirit comes down on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So we have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is proclaimed to be the Son of God. And then you have the genealogies. The Son of this person, Son of that person, so on and so forth. Terribly interesting reading, I'm sure. And then you come to verse 38 at the end. And it says, The Son of Enosh, the Son of Seth, the Son of Adam, the Son of God. So you have Jesus declared the Son of God, and then Adam is called the Son of God, and then immediately, boom, 
Jesus goes into temptation with the devil. And I, I don't think that's coincidental. I, I think the alert reader is supposed to see a parallel there. That just as Adam was tempted, so Jesus is now, in a sense, replaying Adam's story. He's going to follow in that same pattern. But whereas Adam failed, Jesus will succeed. I think there's another Old Testament story here, too, that's being repeated. Uh, and I think it's the story of Israel in the wilderness is, is the other uh, Old Testament specific echo. You know, Israel was called God's son. Exodus chapter 4, Hosea chapter 11. Israel is the son of God. And out of Egypt I have called my son, God says. And Israel was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1 of Luke, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So you have the Spirit leading Jesus into the desert. And I think there's kind of this... Uh, language here of, of Israel in the wilderness. Just as Israel is kind of led by that pillar of fire, perhaps even a theophany of the Holy Spirit. You think of the, the, the fiery tongues at Pentecost. And, and here's the Holy Spirit, in a sense, in the theophanic form, leading, Jesus, uh, leading Israel into the desert to be tested. And Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days. That number 40 is an echo, I think, of the Old Testament Israel story. Uh, Israel was tested in the desert for 40 years, we know. But there's another 40 that, that I kind of forgot about until I was studying this. You remember when Israel goes to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and, uh, and, and while he's gone, Israel, you know, they're waiting, they're waiting, and they uh, come on, where's Moses? Oh, this guy's never coming back. Fine, let's just do it ourselves. We need our own God. And so they, you know, everyone kicks in some gold, and they make this golden calf. And then Moses comes out, and he's like, what? And he throws down the Ten Commandments, and you, you know the story. Uh, do you know how long Moses was on the mountain? Forty days. It was the period of testing. In fact, take out your sermon notes for a minute. This is just trippy. Uh, take out your sermon notes. Looks like this, Luke 4, 1 to 13. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is uh, after the 40 years in the wilderness, as the Israelites are about to enter the promised land. Moses is kind of doing a let's review our history together, people, kind of a thing. And he remembers that moment. And look at the top quote there. Moses says, When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, Go down from here at once because your people who you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. So I, I think there's all these intentional echoes here of, of Israel's story. But the difference is, of course, is that Adam blew it. The Son of God, Adam, blew it. I mean, what does it mean to be the Son of God? I, I think it fundamentally means to, to be obedient to God. The Son obeys the Father. I mean, that, that's the essence of being a son. As well as intimacy with the Father, I think, is the other side of it. But, but here the emphasis is upon obedience. Adam, the son of God, he blew it. Israel, the son of God, blows it. And so throughout the Old Testament story, person after person, figure after figure, they blow it. King David, the man after God's own heart, except for that Bathsheba episode. You know. And King Solomon, the greatest, most wonderful, most uh, glorious of all of Israel's kings. The, the one in whose glory prefigures the glory of Jesus. And, and he has that whole thing at the end of his life with worshipping other idols and you know, marrying foreign women who worship other gods. And so you know, he falls flat. Moses, you know, 
He blows it. He strikes the rock two times. He doesn't get to go into the promised land. I mean, you pick any figure from the Old Testament, no matter how wonderful and exemplary, and there's always a dark side to that person. They never seem to complete the obedience required of God. Abraham, anybody. And you know, their story is our story. We see in them ourselves reflected. Because we're the same way. Yeah, we have accomplishments. We've done great things in our lives. But all of us have been... Uh, marked by sin. All of us fail. You know, I was thinking, we're just like the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> 86 years. No title. It could be worse. It could be the White Sox, 88 years. But, uh, you know, 86 years. No championship title. And there's great moments along the way. You know, sometimes they make it close to the championship. Sometimes they make it into the World Series. But year after year, they fail. Until eventually, Bostonians just come to accept the Red Sox always let us down. Right? It, it, until... 2004. And then suddenly it's like a miracle. In fact, there's all this religious language. Just believe, you know. It's like a religious moment for us that the Red Sox finally win. And and it's like, that's us. I mean, we just are so prone to sin. We follow in the footsteps of Adam. There is a curse. It's not the Bambino, it's the curse of Adam. And, And we fail every time to live up to God's laws. The Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands, there's none who seeks for God. Uh, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All our good works before God are as filthy rags. We are a sinful and broken people. We're just like Adam, just like Israel, just like David, just like Solomon. And so it goes on and on and on until finally Jesus comes. And so I think when Jesus is being tempted here, it's not simply to prove his readiness to enter his public ministry, though it certainly is that. But it's also, Jesus is in a sense... Uh, filling in for us. He's going to see if he can succeed where everyone else in all of human history has failed. Will he be the obedient son of God? And so the temptations come. And there's three of them. This famous story of Jesus' temptation in the the desert. And the first one is a very visceral temptation. Uh, It's the temptation to make some food. If you look at uh, chapter 4, and we're here at verse 2, about halfway through it, it says, he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. And you got to remember, Jesus was fully man. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. And, you know, I think that's important because we as evangelicals tend to emphasize the divinity of Christ. You know, we're always fighting against worldly views of Jesus that downgrade Jesus. And we're like, no, no, Jesus was God. He truly was God in human flesh. That's true. But he was also fully man. And so that means that if he went 40 days without food, he would feel... Well, how I would feel if I went 40 days without food. How would you feel? You'd probably be hungry. You might be delusional. Uh, You'd be irritable. You you might have rustlings with despair. I I mean, I I think after 40 days without eating, you'd you'd just be in a a tizzy emotionally and physically. So this is not some Jesus, you know, out in the desert like, ha-ha, Satan, I won't listen to your temptations. You know, I mean, this is a guy who hasn't eaten for 40 days. And he's tired and he's beat down. And, and so he, he's at a low point. He's, he's been deprived of companionship. And this is a dark moment. And that, of course, is when Satan strikes. Because he always knows when we're weak, when we're tired, when we haven't had enough sleep, when we're hungry. And that's when he hits us. I mean, he, he doesn't play fair. He never has. And he, so he comes to uh, Jesus. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God... Tell this stone to become bread. That, that's a trick there. I mean, that's a, you know, what he's doing is he's twisting the meaning of the Son of God. 
You know, what does it mean to be the Son of God? It means that you're obedient. But somehow Satan has taken that title and flipped it, and now to be the Son of God means that you take power into your own hands. So instead of saying, if you're the Son of God, prove it by obeying, he's saying, prove it by showing your power and, you know, feeding yourself. Uh, you know, Jesus had needs at that moment. We all have needs. We're needy creatures. We're just dust and animated dust that God made. We're weak. We're frail. And so we have needs. We have food. We need food. We need water. We need um, shelter. Uh, at a higher level, we need purpose. We need relationships. We need uh, meaning in our life. Uh, and the world around us tells us that we have to meet those needs at any cost. We live in a culture where you know, needs are sacrosanct. And above all else, you have to have your needs met. You know, I'm leaving you, Fred. Why are you leaving me? Because I'm not having my needs met. You know, <laughs> that's our culture. It's just so messed up. You know, your needs are is, is the most important thing. No, it's not the most important thing. God's will is the most important thing. Obeying God is more important than having our needs met. Uh, better to starve than to sin. Better to starve than to sin. Better to suffer and to struggle than to disobey God's will. And so Satan comes at him. He's saying, take this into your own hands. Take this, uh, you know, you have this physical need. Deal with it yourself, Jesus. Don't trust the Father's will. You know, you can do it. And he comes at us with the same temptation. Yeah, yeah, you need to do good on this test. And I know you studied, but you know, don't just trust God in the studying you did. Take things into your own hands and you can cheat. Yeah, I know you're stressed out and you need to relax, but don't take things into your own hands and open a bottle, you know? That's it. We do have needs, but we need to meet those needs in ways that are consistent with God's will. We don't want to be hopping the fence of God's law and running off and meeting our needs in whatever way we see fit. And we're sexual beings. We have sexual needs. That's the way God wired us up. But God has also told us how those need to be expressed, which is in marriage, which is between a man and a woman. I have to keep defining that today. That's what marriage is. And that's where it has to be lived out. And if that's not where we're at, then we need to honor God's laws, even in that nuclear force that's within us called our sexuality. So that in all things, we need to honor God and do His will. That's what Jesus understood. Adam failed in that regard. Israel failed. But Jesus succeeds. Look what He says. Verse 4. Jesus answers with Scripture. It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. In other words, life is more than just food. Life is more than just water. The essence of life is obedience to God. That's where life is. Better to starve than to sin. You know, better to be deprived than to disobey. Because life is about doing the will of God. And it's interesting, Jesus' quote here comes out of Deuteronomy. Again, from that passage in the Old Testament where Israel is being reminded of its past. In fact, I, I put the quote here in the sermon notes. If you look at the second quotation down, Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is a fascinating quote. Look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 8, second quote down. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. <laughs> it's beautiful. That's what it's all about. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that, and here's the quote, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so we fail. We, we take matters in our own hands. We have our own needs met in our own ways. 
Adam failed, Israel failed, King David fails, Jeremy fails, but Jesus succeeds. That's the point. Jesus succeeds in doing the will of God, and he puts the word of God above his own needs. Then comes the second test. Verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And this is, uh, this is a nasty temptation, too, because, I mean, who wouldn't want that kind of power and authority? It's, a, it's the uh, temptation to power. It's the temptation to glory. And what I find interesting about this temptation is these are all things that Jesus was destined to receive anyway. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is going to have all nations at his feet. He's going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will be the name above every name. Every knee will bow before Jesus. So that's all coming. It's just that, uh, you know, he has to go through the cross to get there. And so what I think Satan is offering him is kind of an end run around the cross. Hey, I can give it to you now. You just don't have to go through the cross. It's easy. Just, you know, it's one little catch. You know, worship me. But besides that, I mean, you can have it all right now. Why go through the cross? Why go through that suffering and humiliation and shame? Just do it now. Just, you know, bow your knees. Just the two of us out here in the desert. No one's watching. You know, that's how it always is. Just worship me. There's always a catch in Satan's deals. You know, he makes Faustian bargains all the time. Yeah, sure. You know, whatever you want, Satan will give it to you. He'll give you whatever you want. There's always a catch. You have to worship him. You have to serve him. You have to bow down to an idol. Like Israel in the desert, you have to bow down before a golden calf. Whenever Satan hands you something on a silver platter, there's always a golden calf behind it. That's the price. And you look under that silver platter of what he's handing you, and you will see that idol that you'll be required to worship. Uh, I just uh, finished reading a book. Oh, it's a great book. In fact, if some of you want to get the uh, bibliographic information, you can after the service. It's called uh, Imprisoned for Christ. And it's the story of uh, Christo Kulichev. He was a Bulgarian pastor at the end of the uh, communist era, late 80s, early 90s in, in Bulgaria. Uh, and he was imprisoned for his faith, as were thousands and thousands of people during the communist uh, regime. And uh, Kulichev uh, was a, this pastor of this church for many years, many decades. And when the communists took over, they had this Committee of Internal Religious Affairs. Doesn't that sound like sort of like a communist committee? The Committee of Eternal Religious Affairs that controlled all the religion in the country. And, and they wanted Christo to basically, you know, acknowledge the power of the committee over his church. And he wouldn't do it. He said, no, this is Christ's church. The committee doesn't control this church. And so he was thrown in prison for three years. And uh, and during that time, you know, it was just a very dark time, and, and he would be interrogated. They'd take him out of this miserable cell, they'd take him to the interrogation room, and, you know, for hours on end, they would just pepper him with questions and keep hitting him with questions and, you know, offering him deals, and just playing all kinds of mind games with you, trying to wear you down mentally to the point where you would accept what they wanted you to do. But Christo would never do it. He just stayed steadfast, he would not give in, he would not give up. And finally, near the end, the, the interrogator was getting frustrated after uh, a month of doing this. He says, look, you know, you can go free, I'll let you go. He, he's like, but look, you just have to accept the fact that the committee, the, the communist committee, is your God. He just came out and said it. And Christo you know, said, when are you going to understand that I have one God, Jesus Christ? And oh, that Satan would be that more blatant with us. You know, at least Christo got to hear it plain. 
But, you know, Satan never tells us that. But there always is a God hidden behind the silver platter that Satan is offering to us. We always have to end up worshiping something other than God if we're going to do it his way. But Jesus does not buckle. Adam buckled. He took the fruit. Uh, Israel buckled. They worshiped the idol. Solomon buckled. He worshiped false gods. We buckle all the time. We worship false gods. But Jesus didn't. And, And what did Jesus say? This was his rebuttal. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 6, rather. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Adam fails, Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. And then the third temptation. Verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is a really insidious temptation. I I think this is the most diabolical of all the temptations. And I think it's diabolical for two reasons. One is because uh, Satan is now quoting scripture back at Jesus. I tell you, Satan knows his Bible people. And, and, all right, Jesus, you want to be a Bible quoter? Okay. Okay. I'm going to quote some Bible right back at you. Uh, Satan is just good at this. He, he knows the Word of God. He knows how to twist it around. Uh, I, I think you especially see this in the cults, um, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, these kinds of cults. They are masters at Scripture twisting. If you hear a knock on your door, and you open it up, and there's two Jehovah's Witnesses, and they want to come in and talk, and you let them get into their spiel, chances are you are going to be blown away by the amount of scripture they can rattle off. In fact, probably most of us here would just be, you know, feel out class. Like, these people know their Bibles so well. And they will rattle off verses, you know, and you'll just be like, wow, I can't even keep up with this. But, you know, yeah, they know some verses, but, you know, they've, been, they've memorized a script. And what they do is they take a verse from over here, and they take a word from over there that matches this verse, and they take this passage, well, part of it, out of context. And so it's all these things taken out of context and then kind of reassembled to look like the Bible. And they'll just rattle off this, it's a, it's a memorized thing, you know, and they know certain responses, certain verses. And it makes you feel like, that, wow, they know the scriptures. But it's just scripture twisting. That's exactly what Satan does. He's, he's twisted the scriptures here. We have this quote here about the angels protecting you if you throw yourself down from the temple. And the angels won't let you strike your foot against a stone. But, you know, he's twisted and taken that passage out of context. This is from Psalm 91. Go back in your own time. Read Psalm 91. And the point of Psalm 91 is that when trials are coming at you, you need to go trust in God for your refuge. Not go out there and create a trial to test God for him to prove that he will take care of you. You see that? This is totally twisted. I mean, he just inverted the whole thing. He did it with Adam and Eve. Did God really say to you uh, that you're not supposed to eat of any tree in the garden? He's always taking God's words and twisting them in some way. So just because someone's quoting the Bible to you, just because I'm quoting the Bible to you, you always have to check for yourselves to see, is this really being used in context? Is this really what the Bible's saying? Because anybody can take some Bible verses or cite the Bible and, and twist it around. It's a classic tactic of Satan. But I also think this is an insidious temptation, the second reason, not only because he's twisting the Scriptures, but secondly, uh, he, he's playing with Jesus again at this low point in his experience. Forty days without food. And it was God who led him into this. Now, if Jesus is 100% human, 
uh, I suspect that he probably had questions like, you know, when is this going to end? Is God still with me? I thought I was going to go out and minister in the name of the Lord and I'm in this desert, I'm starving. You know, what's the point? I'm no good dead. And it's in those times of darkness that we start to question God. God, are you really there? Why is this happening to me? So what Israel did in the desert, right? Out in the desert, they start complaining, we don't like it here. This desert stinks. There's no water. There's no food. Oh, there's the manna. Well, we're sick of manna. I mean, is there anything else on the menu? And, you know, why, why can't we just go back to Egypt? I mean, Egypt was great. And, you know, I mean, and Moses, I mean, he thinks he knows everything. It's Moses, Moses this. You know, why, why can't we have some other leaders? You know, I think you'd be a good leader. Why does Moses have to be the leader? All this grumbling and complaining in the desert. And that's so us. When, when we start to go through those dark times, you know, why is this happening to me, God? And whether it's uh, problems at work or problems with our children or parents or health, or, you know, wh- whatever the problems we go through in life, you know, we start getting angry at God. Like, God, why is this happening to me? I mean, I, I've been a Sunday school teacher for two years for you, you know? Well, actually a year, and this is my second year, but, you know, I've, I've been doing this for you. And, and you know, I, is this what a thanks I get? Is this the payment I get for serving you, God? And, you know, I tithe God, and I try to be a good person, and, and this is what you do to me? This isn't fair, you know? And we start railing against God. And the temptation is, when we get into the dark moments, to test God. All right, God, prove to me that you love me. You've got to do this and this and this in this and this and this timetable, and then I'll believe that you're still taking care of me. That's, that's the temptation that I think is being offered uh, to Jesus here. But Jesus understands this. He sees through the scripture twisting, and he sees through the temptation, and he says, no, 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 no. Do not put God to the test. Or as uh, Pastor Christo said in this book, there's this one line he repeats. You've probably heard this line before, but he repeats it many times in the book. Don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. You heard that phrase? That's a good one. Don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. In the light, God has shown us that He's good, that He loves us, that He's in control of everything that happens, that no matter what happens in our lives that's evil, God can use it for good. He's shown us all those things. But when I get into a dark spot, I start to doubt all of those things. And so we have to remember in those dark times of testing, not to doubt God, not to put Him to the test, but like Jesus, to simply wait upon God in the middle of trials and tribulations. And not expect that at that moment, you know, we can demand that God has to do X, Y, and Z to prove Himself. I'm going to throw myself off this temple and you've got to prove to me that you love me by catching me. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. We trust in God's timing. And so Adam failed. Israel failed. I fail. You fail. But Jesus finished the test. He kept the law of God. He won the title of obedient son of God. And so the devil gives up for now. It says in verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting... He left him until an opportune time. So there's going to be more testing, but we, we know that Jesus will pass the test. I think this, this passage is sort of a harbinger. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus' ultimate success. Jesus successfully obeys the will of God. He's the obedient son um, that we all fail to be. Um, what does that mean for us, though? Okay, so that's who Jesus was. That's what he did. But what does that mean for us? And Boy, I wish I had another 45 minutes to just go off on what this means for us. 
Because there's so many implications for our lives practically. But let me just raise one thing this means for us, the chief one. And it's simply this. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus kept the will of God and did the will of God where I couldn't. And so my salvation and my standing before God is not based upon me. It's based upon Jesus who is my righteousness. Where I fail, Christ succeeded. Where I sin, Jesus has obeyed. Now we as Christians, we often talk about the fact that on the cross Jesus took my sin upon himself, and that's true. But we don't often focus on the other side of that equation, which is that his righteousness was placed upon me. There was a trade that took place in salvation. Uh, we call this the doctrine of imputation. In fact, if you look on the back of your sermon notes, uh, I have some theological definitions there. I don't have time for the other two. There's imputation. Imputation simply means to reckon or to consider. It, it's kind of an account. Any accountants here? Isn't this an accounting term? To impute numbers? I, I think so. Nobody's nodding. Okay, I, there's no accountants here. That's good. Um, so, it, it means to reckon or to consider. In other words... Even though I am the sinner, my sin, the guilt of my sin, was reckoned to Jesus. And even though He's the obedient Son and I'm not, His righteousness was reckoned to me. So that when God looks at Jeremy, He doesn't see Jeremy's many sins and failures and weaknesses. He sees the obedient Son of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's on page 1145 in your pew Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Here's a simple verse. Remember if you've already memorized it, perhaps. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus became sin. What does that mean? That He actually sinned? No. It means that He bore the penalty of sin. But then there's the other side of the exchange, that we become the righteousness of God. So it's not just that Jesus forgive my sins on the cross, but His entire life of perfect, meritorious obedience is reckoned to my account. So that when I stand before God, I can have confidence to pray. You know, because Jesus is my righteousness, I can come preach to you. I mean, who am I to preach? I should be in the back groveling on the carpet, asking for God's forgiveness. But I can stand before you and preach, not because I'm anything better, or because I'm in the seminary, but simply because Jesus is my righteousness. And His righteousness clothes me. And because of His righteousness, I can come and pray. And I can say, God, ugh, I need your help. I'm struggling with this temptation or this trial. And Lord, I'm being tempted to, to doubt you. I'm being tempted to take things into my own hands. I'm being tempted to worship false gods. But Jesus, you are my righteousness. Jesus, cover me and strengthen me. It's because of who Jesus is that I have any standing before God. And I think that's important because we as Christians, we fail, we struggle. And in those moments of failure, that's when Satan gets us again. Satan is a double whammy. He tempts us to sin, then we sin, and then once we're down, he starts taking the boots to you. He didn't play fair. He starts taking the boots to you. Oh, who are you to pray to God? Look at you failed again for the hundredth time. Forget it. You're too far gone. And that's when we have to cling to Christ, our righteousness, and say, my righteousness is not in my track record. My righteousness is not in the fact that I was able to have three quiet times this week. 
My righteousness is not in the fact that I went to church or I tithed this much or I served on this committee. My righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Is your righteousness in Christ this morning or are you trusting in something else for your righteousness before God? Are you just before God in your own eyes or is it based upon Jesus who obeyed and died for you? Maybe you've heard of uh, this famous Puritan John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Very famous, uh, probably one of the most famous Puritan works. Sort of an allegory of the Christian life. He also wrote a spiritual autobiography. Uh, I love the title. It's called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. That's, that's the story of his autobiography. And uh, if you read it, it's a great thing. It's, it's pretty torturous in some ways because Bunyan went through this like several year period of just self-doubt, self-introspection. He would be like, I want to be saved. I want to know that I'm saved. I want to know that I'm really going to heaven. And then he'd see some things in his life that gave him hope. And then, you know, he's like, oh, I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Maybe I'm, I'm okay now. And then he'd fall away and he'd blow it again. He'd be like, oh, I can't do it. You know, I can't keep God's law. And I, I thought this. And he'd drift away for a month. And then something would happen and he'd come back to God. It's just really, it, it's kind of tiring to read, actually. It's just like back and forth, back and forth. And he can't ever come to an assurance that he's right with God. And then one day, the thought comes to him. And I'll read it, and I'm going to translate it a little bit. So this isn't the original. I have the original kind of old English here, but it's kind of hard to follow. So I'm just going to try to translate it a little bit. But here's what he says. He says, One day, as I was walking in the field, fearing, that, uh, less, fearing less yet not all was right, in other words, that I wasn't righteous before God, suddenly this sentence fell into my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness. For my righteousness was standing before Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is your righteousness in Christ, or is it in something else? Do you love and hold on to Christ as your righteousness, or is it in some other vain thing that can never ultimately satisfy the demands of God. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that our esteem for You would grow, that we would love You more because You are our righteousness. God, we, we are people who are always trying to justify ourselves. We try to prove that we're right when we argue with our spouses, when we argue with our parents. We try to prove that we know it all and that the, the government doesn't or the school doesn't or the church doesn't. Lord, we're always trying to make ourselves look better. And, and Lord, it's such a, a fool's errand. Because we know, Jesus, that none of us can stand before you righteous and clean. That even in our best moments, we're just hypocrites. And so, Jesus, we praise You that where we have failed, You have succeeded. And Jesus, our hope is in Your righteous obedience for us. Jesus, You are our righteousness. And I pray, Jesus, that this simple truth would just soak down deep into all of our hearts. 
deep, deep in, Lord, that it would drive out self-justification and self-righteousness. And that we might become a humble people who are truly dependent on what you did for us. Lord, make this a church full of Christians who cling to Jesus for their hope. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that Jesus, you would show them the sufficiency of your life and your death. That we might let go of our own lives. That we might let go of our own self-righteousness and self-acclamation. That we might just trust you alone. That we might all be able to stand with our fingers pointing to heaven and say boldly, there is my righteousness before the Father. As we come to the communion table now, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would minister to us, that you would show us more of yourself, that we might go out of here strengthened in our inner souls, knowing that we are yours. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. The elders could join me now. We also have the choir. Choir is going to come, and we have a special treat today. They're going to sing during communion. This is a communion meal. It is a remembrance of Jesus' obedience all the way to the cross. That Jesus did the Father's will not only when it was popular and not only when it was pleasant, but He did the Father's will even when it involved suffering and crucifixion and death. And we take these elements to remind ourselves of Jesus' sacrifice. This bread symbolizes His body that was broken and this cup of, uh, of juice symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. Uh, this communion table is open to anybody here who's a Christian. You don't have to be a Baptist. You don't even have to be a Protestant. But you do have to have personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' table. And by eating these elements, what you're saying publicly is Christ is my righteousness. And if that's not where you're at in your own life, then you know, just participate with us by, just by observing and, and seeing what we do and how we do it. So uh, I invite the elders to join me here at the communion table as we remember uh, the night before Jesus went to the cross. He was eating a Passover Seder with his disciples and he took some of the matzah bread, the unleavened bread, and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And uh, Herb, would you give thanks for the, the broken body of Jesus? Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we are reminded today of the of Christ and how he kept his mind on really what his mission was and who he was but he humbled himself Lord we claim that as our salvation today and our righteousness as we remember the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross 